Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, recording from my apartment, Le Chateau T-Dot, on the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. Mike, the sound guy, is still on vacation, and I'm actually recording this in the middle of a snowstorm. Our very first ice-slash-snowstorm of 2018. Court is closed tomorrow. Hallelujah. Um, so I'm taking some time to put in a little extra TLC on the front end of this podcast before we get into the meat and potatoes of it. Uh, so you might notice this is a Thursday. So this is a quasi bonus episode of sorts. I can't really call it a bonus. I'm putting that in air quotes because I know y'all only got a mini pod earlier this week. Um, but we do have an interview with my good friends from college, Dave Fox and James Hankins. And at the back third of the episode, we will have a Law 140 on the Dormant Commerce Clause. But before we get into that, uh, I do want to say a couple things about the podcast. First, I want to give a shout out to AKA Petey. I don't know if he's actually a listener, but on Twitter, he is at no pain, double underscore, no gain. So we've had a, a issue here where I had somehow done something with the GarageBand recording setup where GarageBand was truncating the audio form, so you end up with feedback, even though I would talk in my normal voice. You might have been able to tell some of that on the mini pod we had earlier in the week, and I could not figure out what the flying hell I did. Normally, this is the type of thing where when I screw it up, Mike just knows what to do and fixes it right away, and I'd been toying around with GarageBand for the better part of a week, trying all sorts of ways to do it, uh, and couldn't figure out what I'd done. I found out that it only happened with my Yeti microphone, uh, it did not happen with the built-in microphone, but the Yeti worked fine when I recorded in something that was not GarageBand. So I tweeted out a request for help finally after like a week and a half, included a couple screenshots, and in less than an hour, uh, AKPD came in and had some tips, and it actually fixed the problem. So I, I don't know if the audio is perfect yet. I'm looking at my sound waves now, and they're a little bit bigger than they normally are, even though I'm using the exact same recording setup. Um, so if this episode comes off a little too loud. I apologize. I'll try and tweak it after the fact. Uh, but that thing had been bugging the fuck out of me for days. So AKA PD, if you're listening, thank you so much for your help. Also, I don't know if I mentioned this or not. Uh, in a prior podcast some time ago, I mentioned that we needed to fix our old episode catalog because we had the wrong uh, episode numbers. We had some links that were missing. I've gone through all of those during the Christmas break and everything is now completely up to date. So if you've missed any of our old episodes, all of the numbering is right. If you use our old episodes because you want to track a particular story, uh, most of them now have working links to the prior coverage so we can keep that rolling going forward. So just know that has been done as well. Links are corrected. Show notes are updated. Everything should turn up correctly in uh, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, wherever you happen to get your stuff. All right. So with all that being said, as always, please join the conversation online. If you haven't already, we are on Twitter at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can leave us a comment on our website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you want to support the show, you can become one of our patrons on Patreon. Patreon at patreon.com slash fisk. That is patreon.com slash fsck. I'd mentioned during the mini pod that we had actually flubbed the original interview with Dave and James. So if you are one of our patrons, you can actually listen to what I'm, I'm calling the outtakes. It's really just my voice. So we recorded the three of us and it ended up only my voice got recorded. So if you want to hear how that went the first time, 
to compare it to what you're about to hear, uh, you can do that on the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Fisk. So before we get into the Dave and James interview, I, I forgot to mention this earlier. I do want to talk a little bit about the tax bill. So last month, the House and Senate both passed a significant change to the tax laws. The president signed it. And like so many times we have on the show, I end up hating everybody on both sides of the issue because the rhetoric about it just gets so fucking unhinged, it's insane. So of course, on the Republican conservative side of it, this has been the greatest legislative accomplishment since the creation of the fucking Constitution itself. Uh, a bunch of companies have announced they're giving out bonuses to their employees, which is all well and good. Uh, but in several cases, you notice there are news stories of positive press where they give out these bonuses. And then in subsequent stories and smaller print, they announce layoffs. So it's like this, this fantastically cynical ploy uh, to try and get some good press and to try and stroke the president's ego because our beloved papaya POTUS, Donald Trump, is the easiest mark in the business. As long as you fluff him just right, he will continue to do whatever you want and sing your praises. But then, of course, on the Democrat progressive side of it, everyone's like, oh, my God, people are going to die, blah, blah, blah. No one's died from a tax cut. They haven't. It, it just does not happen. People don't die from tax cuts. Now, you can make the argument later on that people are going to die when government spending gets cut. Whether that's true or not, I will leave to the experts on the issue, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit in a minute. But the notion that you know we're all going to hell in a handbasket because of a tax law change is just silly. And it's particularly silly when it was just a few years ago that taxes were increased as part of the Obamacare passage and some of the tax changes that were made under Obama. So when you hike taxes over an eight-year span, to then cut them back to where they were before you hiked them is not the end of the world. It's just not. You know, My thoughts on the tax bill, I, I suspect, and I, I can't speak for anyone else, but I end up with two minds on it. You know, On the one hand, I'm always for tax cuts, always, with very few exceptions. I always support businesses, with very few exceptions, because I run a business. I have a pass-through. So listening to all of the liberal smarm about, oh, pass-throughs are so evil, fuck you. Because the fact is, most lawyers in particular, but small businesses in general, are pass-through entities. What a pass-through is, is it's something where the corporate form is treated, it's basically disregarded for tax purposes. So in the case of my limited liability company, uh, when I fill out my tax form, my 1040, I have an annual return, and then I attach a Schedule C, which is profit or loss from business. And there was some preliminary discussion, and I think the Senate version of the bill that passed through taxation got better treatment than regular corporate taxation. And, you know, this became a big hullabaloo. You know, the guys on Pod Save America talked about it at length and so on. And I thought that was ridiculous because the fact is when you run a business, you pay a shitload of taxes. You don't only just pay a shitload of taxes. You pay them to a shitload of different entities because I have to pay the IRS. I have to pay the North Carolina Department of Revenue. I have to pay the North Carolina Unemployment or Employment Security Commission, whatever it's called. Uh, I have to pay privilege licenses to the cities and counties. I have to pay a privilege license to the State Department of Revenue. Uh, but then in addition to that, you got to pay taxes all the fucking time. You know, the rest of y'all who work at a regular job, you pay your taxes as your paychecks are taken. I mean, your taxes are taken out. You don't really notice it. But you file a return once a year. For business owners, we got to pay money every quarter to make sure that we keep the government running because the government knows we've got cash flow. So you're paying it quarterly to these different entities, and the quarters don't always line up. So I'll pay, uh, you know, March, June, September, December 
for one company and then for one entity rather for one uh, government agency and then I'll pay in April, July, you know, and so on down the line for another one. So it's like I'm chronically doing fucking tax paperwork. So doing tax paperwork, paying a shitload of money, I'm always for tax cuts. That's a general rule. But the problem with this particular tax bill is that, well, there are three problems I have with it, broad scope. Number one, our tax code is a complex fucking mess. And this bill does not improve that at all. You know, I had to take income tax in law school. It's actually a required course at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. It's Introduction to Personal Income Taxes. It's the only class in law school where I actually broke down and cried during the final exam. Hand to God, it's true. But it's just a mess. The tax code is huge. I still have a copy of a portion of the Internal Revenue Code on my bookshelf in my law firm. And it's nuts. The problem with a complex tax code is twofold. One, we use tax code for a lot of social engineering. So we, we incentivize people to buy houses by allowing you to deduct mortgage interest. We incentivize people to have kids by having a child tax credit. We incentivize people to work by having the earned income tax credit that is for low-income folks that is refundable, which means that you actually get money back in your pocket even if you didn't pay enough uh, taxes during the course of the year. It's a very significant social engineering program. Now, whether we should have it do that or not is a separate debate, but the fact is the more complexities you add to it, the harder it is to isolate what any given piece of it does. You know, if you think of it like a balloon, if you have a balloon, you squeeze one end, the other end bulges out, it's very easy to determine cause and effect. But if you have a balloon that you squeeze at like five or six different points all at the same time, it's hard to figure out what portion of that bulge at the end is caused by any individual squeeze along the process. So that's the first problem with having a complex tax code. The second problem is the more complex it is, the easier it is for lobbyists to get their little provisions tucked into it. You know, there's an exemption in the bill that allowed you to get a special deduction if you have a corporate jet. You know, whether that's good or bad is a exercise for the reader to determine. But if I'm a entity, an industry, a particular rich person, and a tax change could save me millions of dollars, but in terms of cost only affect you pennies, I have a very strong incentive to go hire a lobbyist to spend all day talking to Congress critters to get me that particular exemption. It's easier to do that when the tax code is 2,000 pages long and you can tuck in an amendment without anyone noticing. It's harder to do that if the tax code is simpler. So my first problem is with the bill is that it does nothing to fix the tax complexity that we have. The second piece is that it starts reducing the tax deduction for state and local taxes. Now, this has been spun as a tremendous conservative victory. The argument is that red states are subsidizing blue states by allowing uh, tax deductions for high-tax states like California, New York. And there are two problems I have with that argument. First, of course, is it's ridiculous, because if you're going to determine how one state is subsidizing another, you have to take into account both the amount of taxes paid and the amount of government benefits that go flow in the other direction. The reality is, even if you assume for the sake of argument that allowing the deduction of state and local taxes benefits high-tax states like California and New York, those also tend to be high-income states as well, so they don't get as many government benefits as the others. 
and there have been all kinds of studies on this. It's the general principle, with very few exceptions, is that states that tend to what we consider blue, so California, New York, Illinois, they tend to subsidize states that we consider red, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. There are a few exceptions. So like uh, Texas, for example, very red, but also a net subsidizer of other states. So the, the subsidy argument for allowing or disallowing the state and local tax deduction just doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold water. But also, there's a separate philosophical argument that if you, you know, states don't pay taxes. That's the reality of it. There is no tax for a state to pay to the federal government. Taxes are paid by citizens. They're paid by individuals. And if you as a person make money that is taken away from you by your local or state government, it's a violation of the social contract for you to then pay taxes on that amount to the federal government too. Yes, you have the choice to move, assuming you have the money to do that, but it's very anti-conservative to argue that one government should be able to tax you on money that you've already lost, that has already been taken away from you. So that's the second piece. They're starting to get rid of the state and local tax deduction. But then the third piece is that it doesn't allow the government to fund the promises that our politicians have made on your behalf. And that is the bigger problem that we're going to have long term. It adds more than a trillion dollars to the deficit over a 10-year time span. Sidebar, I don't know why we do 10-year time spans for budget bills. That's neither here nor there. But it adds a ton of money to the deficit, which is going to compound the debt, which is going to become a problem because that debt can only get repaid in you know, visible taxes, the money that gets taxed away from you, or invisible taxes in the form of inflation where we just decide to print more money. And eventually, if we don't get the budget in order where it's actually financing the promises made either by cutting those promises or increasing the taxes, one or the other, they're going to have to pick one because there is no third option. It's going to be problematic. You know, I'll give you an example from my personal life. I'd mentioned during the episode where uh, I said goodbye to Samson that I have been in bankruptcy since October. I filed Chapter 13. Now, I, I don't say that to you know, ask for sympathy, but to kind of give you a parable of how my life has turned out and, and analogize that to the country. So I've run my law firm for just over five years now. The country's been around for 220-something. I'm bad at math. Forgive me. I don't have a calculator in front of me. So basically one year of my law firm is about 40-ish years of the country, give or take a few. For the first four and a half years of my law firm, everything was going great. We had exponential growth. You know, one year we're growing 30% year over year, and then 50% year over year, and then 100% year over year. And I didn't think it was going to continue like that forever, but I didn't account for it going down. You know what I mean? And because we had that exponential growth, I made certain life choices. I hired staff to help me out. In 2016, I ran for the state legislature. And what happened over the course of the end of 2016 throughout most of 2017 is not only did that exponential growth disappear, but it actually went into reverse. We slid into a law firm equivalent of a recession. And at first, when it was slowing down, I decided to use my personal credit to continue paying the law firm's bills because it wasn't my staff's fault that things were slowing down. I didn't want to lay them off. 
And that continued for a while. We kept treading water. And then fast forward to September, October, when Samson got sick. This would be the law firm equivalent of an economic shock, be it a terrorist attack or something else. And I figured that, you know, it wasn't the dog's fault that he, you know, I, I was running out of money. So I used personal credit and money that would have gone to my car payment to help try and pay for the dog's treatment. Uh, and then everything went to hell in a handbasket very quickly. So you have kind of this long span of treading water and then a very sudden drop where everything just falls apart. My car got repossessed on a Wednesday. I filed bankruptcy on a Thursday. I had to put Samson down on a Friday. Monday, I had to go out to court three and a half hours away to deal with a case and then had to pick up my car, you know, out there. So in, in the context of the country, we've had something similar. We had very dramatic growth in the country for most of our history. That started to change around the stagflation period of the 1970s. And it's we had a little bit of improvement slightly during the 80s and 90s. But the amount of government spending went through the fucking roof, and then that got a little bit better under Clinton, and then we had 9-11 and went through the fucking roof again with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And even though Obama somehow has this reputation as a deficit cutter, he spent more money faster than George W. Bush. People talk about the percentages of how much he increased the debt, but that's stupid. Because the rule of percentages is that as you have a bigger base to deal with, changes to that base become a smaller percent of the base. That's just the reality of math. So we've had this trend continuing for a while where the annual deficit is now more than our annual gross domestic product, you know, as a, as a barometer of how much we're spending versus how much we're taking in. It's got wildly out of whack, and this tax bill makes it worse. And, it, you know, we're going to get some economic growth, I think, out of it because when people have more money in their pockets, they're more inclined to go spend it and help expand the economy, do things they wouldn't do otherwise. But there's going to come a reckoning at some point. You know, I mentioned earlier that I like a lot of superhero movies. I don't know if any of you have watched Doctor Strange, but Mordo kept having a saying, the bill always comes due. It's going to come due at some point. The hope is it doesn't come due until I'm dead, but it's going to come due eventually, and this tax bill does nothing to fix that, and that's a problem. So that's my mini political rant. I apologize for taking the first 15 minutes of the podcast to talk about it. The gist of it is I love tax cuts, but I hate this bill anyway. With that, let's go ahead and jump into our political, bona fide political conversation with my good friends, James Hankins and Dave Fox. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for sticking with us through the break. You are listening to a special edition of Fiscal Mall. And when I say special edition, this is actually the second time we have done this very interview. Uh, I told y'all that Mike, the sound guy, is on vacation until January 3rd, and I would be trying to create an episode myself. Forewarned you, I would probably fuck it up. And sure enough, days later, that's exactly what happened. I have with me Dave Fox and James Hankins. Fellas, how are you guys doing? Uh, good, man. How about y'all? I'm good, man. I'm doing great. Doing great. I'm good here, too. So we had an hour and a half long conversation the other day. That was fantastic. And then when it was done, found out that Google Hangouts didn't actually record any of it. So if you happen to be one of our patrons on the Patreon page, uh, I uploaded my side of that conversation. So you have one person in a three-way conversation, uh, kind of as an outtake for the patrons. So welcome to listen to it. But we are doing this again and to try and freshen it up to make sure the guys aren't bored and you still get legit conversation, 
uh, we've, we've shuffled from what we did the other day a little bit. You might remember Dave and James from our episode that we had titled The Balkanization of America is Real. Everyone loved it. It is the most downloaded episode we have. I actually checked last night the updated numbers. We've had 2,700 people download that episode. The only complaint we had was that it was a little disorganized. So what we've done is we have an outline of roughly eight topics, give or take a few. We'll see how many of them we can get through, and we will go from there. James, the first two topics are going to start with you uh, because you are currently at Harvard University, or Harvard, I guess would be the correct way to pronounce it, getting your master's degree. And we're going to start with something we covered on a prior What the Fisk relating to a question that you had asked about Harvard's admissions policies. So there's currently a lawsuit pending against the university by an Asian student arguing that Harvard's affirmative action policies discriminate against him and the Department of Justice under Attorney General Beauregard, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III, has actually launched an investigation into what Harvard is doing. So my questions for you and Dave jump in when he's done are what is Harvard doing? And do you think affirmative action policies in higher education still have a place in 2017? To address your second question, uh, this is, of course, Harvard is, the, in relation to the first one, of course, Harvard's fighting back against this perception. And, and obviously, the, the lawsuit was filed uh, by um, Asian-American students uh, or prospective students or whatnot regarding admission into the university. That gets into a lot of uh, tough issues related to uh, the idea of being a minority in America. Who is the model minority uh, in America, which usually uh, is considered that Asian Americans are the quote unquote model minority. So that's a that's another topic. But to talk about affirmative action uh, in higher education, what we have seen is that affirmative action is not perfect, but affirmative action has allowed more students of color uh, into prestigious universities, into uh, four-year universities that wouldn't have gotten there in the first place. And places like Harvard uh, and other Ivy League schools are doing a lot of work in trying to get uh, more minorities, more underrepresented populations into these schools. Now, whether or not affirmative action in and of itself is the one way to go about it or it should be as is uh, right now, I think in a lot of ways uh, what they've tried to do is create more minority friendly campuses, more more inclusion of people of color, uh, people in the LGBTQ community, et cetera, uh, into a lot of different activities, into a lot of different uh, opportunities on these campuses. So when they have these tours that we've seen over the years to bring students to campus that might not necessarily be there, they try to show that the community is a lot more inclusive. And so I think that in and of itself, the idea that affirmative action has no place or or has had little effect on uh, the admission of underrepresented, uh, marginalized populations, especially people of color, into a lot of these high-to-do, well-to-do universities. I think that that's shown that it is effective in that sense. Now, what can be done to change that, to, uh, to affect it, to make it better, or to, to, to look at the policy in and of itself and recognize that things that worked in uh, in the past might not be appropriate for 2017. That's that's another conversation for another day. But um, I think affirmative action has a strong place and a and an important place in admission to higher ed. Huh. I, I, I don't I don't necessarily disagree with that, James. I guess my thing right now is I think if the intended goal of affirmative action 
is to bring a, a, a sizable percentage of African Americans into the middle class, then uh, obviously affirmative action is an abject failure. If it's to create some small elite group that has access to, you know, tier one universities and they can form their own network, then maybe that's a different conversation. But I, I also think that something we need to deal with. I think that this lawsuit that the, that the Asian Americans are, or some Asian Americans are launching against Harvard really shows the ridiculousness of intersectionality. Like this whole thing that everybody who happens not to be a straight white person all have the exact same political and socioeconomic prerogatives. And all they have to do is pull together and you know, things are always going to work out. I, I think this is a great highlight of why that doesn't make any sense. Different groups, you know, have have, have, have different needs or different places. A lot of times they're in different regions of the country. I mean, a lot of African-Americans are either in urban populations or in the southeast, uh, while, you know, the majority of our of our Asian populations on the West Coast. And spread out. So, I, and they're in a different, and a lot of them are in different socioeconomic background. But I, I just think this is just another thing. I think also you look at the Obama administration. For eight years, we had uh, the LGBT community making a lot of strides, making a lot of uh, different inroads. You saw the legalization of gay marriage. You see all of those things, and a lot of things I, I, I don't have a, a problem with personally. But I think it's kind of ridiculous to sit here and pretend like, well, if one group happens to do well, then everybody's doing well. That just doesn't hold water. And I think this is just another thing that highlights the, the ridiculousness of what the Democratic coalition has been selling to African-Americans. To me right now, intersectionality is basically, hey, black people have this history of oppression and we get to use their model and all the stuff that they've suffered, but we're never actually going to deal with the issues that they are confronting. Instead, we're going to use them as a mascot and pass, you know, individual planks to help these individual groups that really won't be affecting most African-Americans. To the other point of, you know, it, it, is Harvard making enough change to accommodate all of these different groups? I, I can't speak for, you know, uh, first generation folks or Hispanics or Asians or LGBT people, because I'm not members of that community, but I can say for African-Americans, uh, the answer is an unequivocal no. I mean, over the past what, two or three years, maybe five years, we've seen huge spikes in HBCU enrollment. And that's going to lead to another conversation here shortly. But I, I think we need to get very, very serious about, number one, what is the actual aims of affirmative action? This whole thing about it's going to help these mat it's going to save this it's going to have this talented tent is going to go back and rebuild the communities. That's just not realistic. You know, there's so I think we need to start if, if getting rid of affirmative action means that we can actually look at some things that can help uh, individual impoverished communities. Maybe look at look at the way that we handle the third world, you know, microfinance, something that we see a lot in Africa would be great in places like Detroit and places like Washington, D.C. and places like Baltimore, where, where, you know, if you are a brother that's trying to start a business, you have a hard time. If you're not coming in with a lot of credit or capital, you're having a hard time getting financed 
to start your business. I think programs like that, I think radical educational reform, which James and I kind of agree on, I think those policies would do a lot more to actually fulfill the mission that affirmative action claims to do, but really doesn't. So do you think it's an appropriate thing for the Department of Justice to be looking into? No, no, I, I don't. But to me, the, the Department of Justice should be looking at, I'm not exactly, now I'm not a lawyer, so I, I can't talk to you about the legalese. But to me, this is not a situation where it's a malicious thing where people are getting uh, excluded from a university because of discrimination. This is not like back, well, now some people might say it is, but I think back, when I think about discrimination and, and elite universities, I think about the cap on Jewish students that people had, that, that the Ivy League universities had at the beginning of the 20th century. Like to me, that's a, that's a big difference between saying, hey, we have a historical uh, problem and uh, we've had over 200 years of discrimination against this group. We need to make some, we need to allow these people access to higher education in order to help stem the tide. I mean, look, there's there's no, in the African-American community, there's no first families of Virginia. There, there's no Mayflower descendants. There, there, there's no uh, Boston Brahmin. Like those, the, the type of, of generational wealth, it just isn't there. So like we see with uh, untouchables in India or like we see with, with certain groups in Brazil, when you have been marginalized for year after year after year after year, if you actually want to stem the tide and make real change, then you're going to have to do some innovative things to get these people in position to take advantage of all the society has to offer. It's not enough to say to a group of people uh, that have no economic backing, who, who are probably the, who might be the first generation of their family to be in school to say, hey, we don't have any discrimination anymore. Now navigate the most the most complicated uh, higher educational job market we've ever seen in the history of the world. Like really, like, that's, that's, that's the solution. Uh, so I, I think this is a waste of the, the, the Justice Department's time. But I, I also think that we're not getting to the real issues if we don't deal with the obvious problems and the lack of the fulfillment of the mission of affirmative action. It just, just I think that's a reality. I'll say this, um, just to, I know this conversation is, is deeper than what we can get into in this amount of time, but I'll say this, Harvard and all these other campuses, we looked at NC State University, which we all are alumni of, uh, and saw the problems that, even though there were a number of African-Americans and people of color on campus, the university in and of itself took very little uh, onus on the idea of having to understand who these communities are and why these communities view things the way that they do. And Harvard's just as problematic as an NC State or any other university, a predominantly white university in this country in really trying to identify not just bringing people of color into the university is good enough, but trying to make sure that all the systemic issues that these people of color have dealt with are being addressed at the university level as well from the professors on down. So, um, but, but James, I guess my only question is, man, is it realistic to think that Harvard is going to be able to serve the same mission as a Morehouse and a Spelman? I, I think the way that it's constituted, you're never going to have a, I don't think that you're ever going to see 
at least not in our lifetimes, a, a, a time where or Harvard has a popular a black African American population over twenty five percent. I don't, I don't understand. I don't, I don't understand. What are you saying? Well, well I guess what I'm. I guess what. I, no, no. no what, what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, it's great for these universities to do whatever they can to accommodate groups of people who have who have been historically marginalized and don't have the same economic backing. But what I'm saying is that there are universities who accomplished the, the mission, this the, the the said mission of affirmative action when it was originally put out to to help. Uh, impoverished African-Americans into the middle class, I'm saying that that they're never going to be able to do as good of a job as, okay. as Howard, Morehouse, et cetera. Okay, okay, of, co of course not. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, that's, oh, okay, that's that's a that's that's a great statement. Yeah, of course not. You're you going to ask somebody in the South if they can cook fried chicken better than somebody in the North. Of course they can. Of course the barbecues will be better down here than it will be in the North. So it's not, it's not it, I, I, what you're implying, and you correct me if I'm wrong, if you're implying that these universities shouldn't be trying to do what nope. they need to do. Nope. No, 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 that's not what I'm implying. That's not what I'm implying. Okay. I'm, I'm saying that we've had how many decades of this and the mission of affirmative action has failed the vast number of people that it's, that it's supposedly trying to help. So I'm saying that Harvard, uh, Caltech, MIT, NC State, University of Florida, do all of the things that you can to accommodate these people. But I'm sick and tired of people holding this thing up as an actual solution for the masses amounts of African-Americans who are trying to enter the middle class. I think that's my issue. I think you'd be hard pressed to find people who are waving the banner of affirmative action as if it's a perfect solution to the no, 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 no. I don't I don't I don't even want it. I don't I'm not saying it has to be perfect. I'm just saying, can you even fulfill even the basics of what you were set up to do? I mean, when we had I think what was it at uh, University of Texas that you had uh, what's it, Abigail Fisher? No, mm -hmm. now she's suing the University of Texas when there have been study after study after study, and even in the Huff, a place like the Huffington Post, uh, Harvard Law School, uh, all these places have said the number one beneficiary uh, beneficiaries of affirmative action happen to be white females. So, I <laughs> like, I'm just like, I'm just sitting here like, yeah. at what point do we, if we, if affirmative action is going to be touted as a way to help the masses of people who are qualified, that can do higher level work, this is going to be a way to help them enter these universities, be successful, graduate into the middle class, that I'm saying its mission, the, what it's trying to do, it's been an abject failure. It's not been an abject failure now. If California California ends affirmative action, you look at the enrollment in UCLA over time and you see that enrollment of African-Americans went down drastically over the years that they got rid of affirmative action. Sure. Um, so there's a number of African-Americans who would not have had the opportunity to receive a higher level of education at a university as prestigious as UCLA if affirmative action didn't exist. Now, your argument has been that this is just a small number of people who have benefited my from- My argument that is, it, it, it's, a, it's a farce. That's my argument. How is it a farce when there are people that- well, my, I'm not saying, I'm not- educated. My, argu my argument has never been that affirmative action has never helped anybody. I'm saying that when we talk about helping the masses of people, that African-Americans that are trying to enter the middle class this is not the same thing as say, uh, what's a good example? When all when all of those uh, soldiers came back and got those VA loans and helped and, and were able to buy homes, 
like that's a real that's a real way to get people into the middle class. And a lot of African Americans were actually veterans. People like my grandfather actually precluded from getting VA loans because uh, the uh, Roosevelt administration, in its wisdom, allowed local uh, local authorities to give them out. And obviously, African Americans did right. not were not did not have access to these VA loans. So I guess what I'm saying is, and I don't think this is very hard, even for a smart guy like you is that when we talk about helping the, the masses amount of African-Americans who are qualified and can do higher level work, who can, who can get into engineering, who can get into nursing, who can get into law, when you get into all these, these fields, I'm saying they're not being served by this program, by and large. That's what I'm saying. And I'm saying we need to rethink how we, how if, if the mission of affirmative action is to do X, and it's not doing X, I'm willing to look at some different things. Now, the, the, the lawsuit that, 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 that is put by the, the Asian American complaints, you know, I, I, I feel, I mean, I feel bad for them in the sense that, hey, you know, if you feel like you, you worked your behind off, you got a, a 4.6 or whatever the case may be, high SAT scores, National Merit Scholar, and you didn't get into the universities that you wanted to get into, I have empathy, but I think that one of the things that we have to think about is when when the state harms a group of individuals, the state has a responsibility to make them whole. And there's a lot of people who didn't personally intern Japanese people, but the state and taxpayers all had to kick in and settle those suits with their money because, hey, the state did this. They have a responsibility to make them whole. I guess that I just I guess I'm just tired of affirmative action being held up as this panacea. It's not who is doing that? Who is who is who is saying that affirmative action is 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 completing its mission in full? People recognize their problems in affirmative action. The issue that people have more often than not is that as soon as people start attacking affirmative action, they just do not acknowledge that it has had some benefits. People don't want to tweak affirmative action. The people who are opponents of affirmative action don't want to tweak affirmative action. You might because you're a very smart person. But more often than not, people who don't want people who oppose affirmative action don't want to tweak it. They just want to get rid of it altogether. And that's this, my this, issue. This, this is not a Ward Connerly uh, Blum debate. This is I, I I vehemently disagree with those people. But I think we do need to rethink about how we do affirmative action or, re, or just rethink the mission of how we get people into the middle class and into these universities and how they're best going to be served. And I, I just don't think that a policy that is literally set up to to supposedly help African-Americans and the majority of people that are able to take advantage of it and use it are white females. And those are some of the same people that are suing it. I think there's a little bit of, of just insanity about the program. We need to rethink some things. All right. One thing we need to rethink is using the fucking timer on this podcast. We're going to let this one go for now. But there was a lot of talk about programs used to bring people of color into the middle class and, and try and improve the educational prospects of minorities. One of those used to be North Carolina's teaching fellows program. And well, let's do this. James, you were a fellow. So give us a quick emphasis on quick rundown of what the teaching fellows program was. And then I'll continue with the story about what's happened since and get y'all's thoughts from there. All right. North Carolina teaching fellows program, uh, which I'm a proud alum of, was a program designed to get students who were high school students who were interested in becoming educators and essentially pay for their four years at a public university at one of the 16 campuses, uh, as well as a couple of private schools. 
um, in North Carolina. And the idea was this program would provide a scholarship as well as different program uh, programmatic activities, such as uh, a trip through the state throughout the summer where you would visit different parts of the state and get to learn a little bit about North Carolina's culture um, from the east to the west um, of the state, um, other things like that. And the idea was that you would teach for four years in the state of North Carolina uh, and would pay back your loan, or I'm sorry, pay back your scholarship um, and uh, you would graduate debt free unless you went to NC State or University of North Carolina uh, where you had to pay a little bit of extra money to go to those universities. But other than that, it was a um, program designed to have teachers teach in the state debt free um, and for four years um, while also being prepared to be in the classroom as an educator. Got it. So back in 2011, the General Assembly with a bipartisan, it was run by Republicans, but Democrats signed on, bipartisan majorities, uh, phased out the North Carolina Teaching Fellows Program because it was supposedly too expensive. And what they found soon thereafter was that it was very difficult to recruit teachers. So we ended up less than six years later with a teacher shortage. So they brought the program back, and the News and Observer has a pair of articles that I'll give our listeners in the show notes where they can follow up on this. But essentially, the legislature recreated the program. As part of that recreation, only five universities are allowed to participate. Those five would be chosen by a teaching fellows commission that the legislature appointed, and in making that decision, the commission had to use certain guidelines that were spelled out in the law. And what has happened is just a couple weeks ago, the five participants were announced. They are Elon University in Elon, North Carolina, which is next to Greensboro, uh, Meredith College in Raleigh, NC State in Raleigh, UNC Chapel Hill, and UNC Charlotte. There were no historically black colleges picked. Uh, North Carolina A&T State in Greensboro was the only one that applied because none of the other HBCUs could meet the legislative criteria. Uh, there are also no colleges east of I-95. The entire western or eastern half of the state was basically completely shut out. And this has, of course, caused some uproar. And the legislature has said, wait, 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 this is not our fault. This is on the commission's fault. And let me just put on the record, hiding behind the decisions of bureaucrats that you pick using guidelines that you write down is the height of political cowardice. Let's just go ahead and put that out there. Every politician blaming the teaching fellows commission is a political coward. But the question is this, is it actually evidence of racial and geographic bias on the part of the legislature or is this just more of a, a growing pains of sorts for a new program? I think it's, it's all, of course, evidence of geographic and racial bias. That's if we pretend that didn't, doesn't exist, then I think we're doing a disservice to everybody who is concerned about this particular issue. I think more uh, important is to look at the idea that a lot of uh, HBCUs, unfortunately, uh, don't have the political power that some of these more predominantly white universities tend to have. And a lot of that comes from weaker alumni bases when it comes to annual giving and, and things like that. I was talking to uh, the former president of Morehouse uh, a few days ago, about a, a couple months ago, actually. And in his conversation, what he found was that students who go to HBCUs love their experience. They are very prideful of their experience. My father told me I was going to A&T from day one. He said, you're not going anywhere else but North Carolina A&T State University. So I think I'm uh, disappointed in my father from this day forward. But people who go to HBCUs have a lot of pride 
in their experience there. They love their classmates. They love their cohort. They, they enjoyed everything about it, but there are aspects that have really frustrated a lot of alums in, at HBCUs in the sense that whether it was contacting uh, the financial aid office and having a tough time getting answers for questions that they needed, or whether it be professors not quite giving them the information that they wanted. In a lot of ways, that puts a bad taste in people's mouth about their university. So when somebody calls you up at seven o'clock at night and says, hey, we just want to check in with you and you know it's a call about annual giving. Can you donate <laughs> to the university? You know you get that phone call. You think back to that time that you tried to call financial aid and they didn't get your aid in on time. And so you don't want to donate to that university. I'll say this. I, I'm going to interrupt you briefly. So North Carolina Central has started. I'm an Eagle, by the way. I respect the Aggies, but Eagle pride all day long. They've started piecing together this supposed alumni yearbook and they're really doing it as a fundraiser. They call you to quote unquote update your information, but then you have to sit through like a 10 minute sales pitch to get you to actually buy this yearbook <laughs> that I don't need as a way of trying to raise money. Sorry, James, continue. They're doing like timeshares for the yearbook now? Okay. <laughs> well, you know, Greg Greg is an Eagle, you know, his, his good friend and brother, Mike Easley as well, and also an Eagle alum. Uh, so I know there's a lot of pride. All right, now, now see, you're gonna make me stop you again. So even though Mike Easley is the first governor of North Carolina to be a convicted felon and get disbarred, I'm going to tell you, I actually met him once, and he's actually a really nice guy. I hate to do a sidebar. I apologize to the listeners, but UNC Greensboro and North Carolina A&T State have a joint venture in Greensboro. It's a nanotechnology, nanoscience building that both campuses work on. And the year that it broke ground, I was a recently departed member of the UNC Systems Board of Governors. So I got an invite and I went out and I'd never met Mike Easley before. I've, I've seen him at various things, but I never actually spoken to him. And as we're at this event with normal people, a helicopter flies in and lands on the lawn and out comes Governor Easley and his wife. So I decide that I'm going to go say hello because I have met Mrs. Easley. She was a teacher at NC State and I accidentally walked into her classroom when I was an undergrad. I had the wrong class number, and she was very polite and directed me somewhere else. So I've met her once uh, in that capacity. So I go up, and I introduce myself to Governor Easley and tell him that I am a, uh, I was a 3L at the time. So I was both a law student at Central and the president of Central Student Government for the law school. And I, I tell him that, and he goes, holy shit, they elected a white guy president? I'll be damned. And calls over his wife and goes, Mary, come meet this guy. And ends up introducing me to her and I talked to them for a little bit. He's an incredibly nice guy, even though he happens to be a convicted felon. <laughs> yeah, most convicted felons I know I tend to be fairly nice one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, I defend them every day. They're salt-of-the-earth people. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, as far as uh, this James, situation go ahead, with teaching fellows, obviously the lack of geographical diversity is a problem. Right now, we have three universities, Elizabeth City State, which is on the northeast tip of the state of North Carolina, UNC Pembroke, which is in Robinson County, North Carolina, which is uh, on I-95 South, and it serves actually predominantly, I believe it's Native Americans. I guess, is that the, is that, is that the mission to preserve, to, to, to uh, help that population of people? I think so. And then we have Western Carolina out in Cullowee, which is, would, if they had taken those three universities, and they have right now, I think they're trying to do was it a thousand like a thousand dollars a semester, something like that. They're offered extremely low tuition. 
they could have had teaching fellows basically be the pilot programs of those three universities and help increase enrollment. But I also think that, you know, we have to think about what type of relationships does the African-American community have with the Republican legislature? I think all three of us were in student government. And one of the big things about being in student government is... Dave, I'm sorry, man. Is that the same dog from last time? Yeah, man. Fuck that dog. (laughs) What the fuck is wrong with him? Anyway, sorry about the F-bombs, man. Anyway, man, I, I like... Honestly, it's my sister's dog. Every weekend, she's usually out of town. She's a lawyer. So I ended up dog sitting. And it's a little, it's a Maltese. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with Maltese, but Maltese are little shits. And so I specifically (laughs) put this dog downstairs in the far corner of the house. And he's still barking. He's still being a piece of shit. But anyway, uh, that being said, I, I don't like what they did. I do want to say real quickly that uh, the teaching fellows program that I was in part of was an actual program. First and foremost, there were uh, summer experiences like I spoke about before that helped in, 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 uh, integrate you into what the state's mission is and what the state can be. And it makes you want to be a teacher in the state, where whether whatever section of the state that you choose to live in. And I think this current program is just money, just money that's going to students who want to be teachers. Now, there's some positives about it. You have a little bit longer time to pay it off. But the biggest mistake that they made ultimately is that black males uh, overall are the demographic that are struggling the most in schools, especially in a state like North Carolina, as well as black males are less likely to be teachers. So we have black male students who are below reading level in elementary school, and then we have black male students who are not graduating on time for high school. So why not push this program to do something to to in, uh, inspire more black males to become teachers in this state so that we can start closing that gap that still exists when it comes to black males in public education. So I, I think that, that overall I'm I'm pretty pissed about what's going on uh, regarding uh, teaching fellows in the state and the bastardization, as I've said, of the program that I loved so much when I was at NC State. Well, we'll see how it turns out as they continue hopefully expanding. And I hope this is not just a uh, an initial five university experiment that then gets undone again. We'll see. Well, let's let's go ahead and transition into more pure politics and talk a bit about Alabama. So back a couple weeks ago now, the uh, the Pedo Bear Party candidate, Roy Moore, uh, running as a Republican, did the unthinkable and managed to lose a U.S. Senate election in Alabama. First time they've elected a Democrat U.S. Senator in more than a quarter century. I still had hair back then. Uh, a quick sidebar, if you haven't seen the story on Twitter, there's a law student in Alabama who misunderstood an ad he saw on YouTube, sent a message to Roy Moore saying, I want to vote for you, but I found out that my record is public. The fact that you voted is public, not who you vote for. Uh, He says, my my vote is going to be public. Can you assure me that if I vote for you, it will stay a secret? And Roy Moore, this son of a bitch, when he filed his lawsuit alleging voter fraud, he attached an unredacted copy of this dude's message as a fucking exhibit. So now this kid has taken down his Twitter. He uh, he locked up his LinkedIn when people found him, and he's on record being a total dumbass, even though he's in law school. But anyhow, the question I wanted to get to. So there is an interview with Ezra Klein, and he's talking with Joe Trippi, who is the campaign manager for Howard Dean when he ran for president. Yeah! Essentially, what Joe Trippi says in this interview is that the allegations 
that Roy Moore liked his girls like he liked his liquor, you know, 14 years old, smooth as butter. Uh, that actually helped more because Doug Jones, the Democrat, was trying to untribalize the race, convince Democrats that they could vote for a Republican, and that the allegations actually served to retribalize the race because it became this fake news fight, there's a fake yearbook, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so that anytime you had mention of the sexual assault allegations, it actually made the, uh, the results more difficult for the Jones campaign as opposed to how it actually turned out. Dave, we're going to start with you on this one since politics is your forte. Is this a scenario where Roy Moore was just uniquely bad and that's why he lost? It's not going to be replicated again. Or are we seeing the start of a blue wave like we saw in Virginia? Uh, you saw in Georgia's 6th Congressional District where the Republican only won by 4% when it used to be 24% back in 2016. Which is it? Is more uniquely bad, or is there a wave coming? I guess what I would say is, as far as Alabama goes, Trippy's assertion that this somehow helped Roy Moore, to me, doesn't hold a whole lot of water. If you look at the past, I don't know, what, three cycles, Republicans have lost at least, let's uh, say, what, five Senate seats off the top of my head. Um, what, Ken Buck in Colorado was 2010. He had Sharon Angle in Nevada. Then you had Christine O'Donnell in Delaware. Then you had Todd Aiken in Missouri and Richard Murdoch in Indiana. Now, those are all, those five seats over two election cycles were locks for Republicans to carry. The issue was they nominated terrible candidates who had the, the, the problem of saying stupid things to as many people as possible. So in a deep red state like Alabama, there's no there's no need to you know, gin up the base. There's what over 20% more registered Republicans in the state than there are registered Democrats. So if you look at how many write-in votes, somebody like what Nick Saban got, he got more. There was more write-in votes in the margin of uh, winning between Jones and Moore. So the issue is right now, Republicans are having to deal with a president right now who's, who's extremely unpopular, and number two. They are pissing off the base of the Republican Party, which happens to be married women and suburbanites. Yeah, there are core conservatives like Ted Cruz and all these other folks, a lot of whom I agree with. But there's not enough of those people to carry, you know, purple states like Florida or Pennsylvania without the suburbs. We, we just there is no there's no there's no Republican Party without the Club for Growth, Chamber of Commerce small business owner, married women. There's just that 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 group of people is what puts Republicans over the top in places like uh, the race that Karen Handel just just won in the Atlanta suburbs. So there is there a Democratic wave coming? I, there's a good chance of them taking back the House, but I don't see them taking back the Senate at all. I think there's a huge Democratic wave coming. I think that we're starting to see the signs of it now. I think, I mean, I, I think that, yes, I agree that the race in Alabama was uniquely designed. It was a perfect storm when it comes down to it. Uh, you get a candidate like Doug Jones who, who campaigned on, uh, on, on very just bland issues. He didn't really talk about his policies, if you notice, throughout the campaign. He, he more campaigned on the idea that he could bring people together and that, you know, we needed to to reach our hands across the aisle and be bipartisan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he just let uh, Roy Moore destroy himself and allowed Roy Moore to 
continue to be who Roy Moore is and deservedly lose an election. So yeah, it was a perfect storm that took place. Luther Strange would have wiped the floor with Doug Jones had they allowed him um, or had the citizens of Alabama chosen him instead as the Republican nominee. But I was uh, listening to a podcast the other day, uh, Pod Save America, which I'm sure is not something that uh, Dave would be very friendly towards. But this is John Favreau, <laughs> uh, John Lovett. Uh, and one of the points that they made was that 2018, what they're starting to see amongst the Democratic bases, the thirst is real right now. Democrats are starting to really want to run for these seats that are uh, available because they see the opportunities to win seats that Democrats didn't think they had a shot at winning at all. And a lot of that's due to Trump's politics. A lot of that's due to the idea that Democrats are running people who can be successful in these areas. Doug Jones, granted, probably would have gotten the floor uh, 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 knocked from under him had Luther Strange been a nominee. But Doug Jones was also a candidate that fit the politics of Alabama. He was a candidate who could really? go into African. Well, I mean, he he went. He could go into African American communities and talk about his time as a prosecutor for the case with the four little girls. He could talk about um, these types of things, and he could be there and be as neutral as possible and not relate to uh, uh, trying to get into um, some of the more divisive issues that you could get in in a state like Alabama. That's a partially his views, his views on abortion is far out of step with the majority of this, this, the median voter in Alabama. That's he fine. Just, he just happened to run against an odious candidate. Yeah, but that's fine. But there are other candidates. You can't tell me that if you run, if Nancy Pelosi was from Alabama, she'd win that election, even with Roy Moore as the nominee. Sure. But, but, Jones, but, but, but okay, you but just said is, Luther Strange would have slept walked to an election. But my, my point is Doug Jones was not odious enough that Alabama voters weren't were still comfortable to vote for him anyways. He was a candidate who could still win, even with the perfect storm that took place. He only won uh, by, what, one and a half percentage of the vote. But at the same time, he still was a candidate that was able to win in Alabama, even with all the advantages that he had. This is why Beto O'Rourke in Texas, this is why Phil Breslin in Tennessee, candidates who still have a long shot of winning these seats have opportunities laid out in front of them because they're candidates that fit within the politics of their state. And there are candidates who are doing things innovatively in order to try to get elected. Beto O'Rourke is going door to door. This man is spending time running around the entire state talking to everybody, trying to put that personal one-on-one -on -one connection, uh, that, that all politics is local idea of connecting to people one-on-one -on -one and being able to talk about their individual issues in order to be seen as a viable nominee, a uh, viable candidate, a viable senator, in the state of Texas. So I think there is a democratic wave coming. And I think that in a lot of ways, you will see it in the House. I agree with you there. I think the Senate is going to be a lot tougher, but I also think we probably won't see that many Democratic senators lose seats in states that Trump won in. We count out Claire McCaskill all the time. She ends up winning. We look at Joe Manchin. That dude is a guy who is in a deeply, deeply red state, the, most, the least diverse state in the entire country in West Virginia. He can still win it elections. So I, I think that we have to look at the fact that the Democrats are thirsty right now, and they wouldn't be as thirsty and as active as they didn't think that there was a window of opportunity to win some seats in places that they don't normally win in. I think it's all what's going to matter is who comes out of the primary. If you look at Indiana, where Joe Donnelly is, or Montana, where John Tester is, or North, North Dakota, where Heidi Heitkamp is, 
if they if they nominate a middle of the road, just a Dick Luger Republican, he's going to win in those states unless, especially if the economy is going well. I think that this blue wave has been a little bit overrated. I think it, it, it might it might come to fruition in the House, but the map in 2018 is really unfavorable to Democrats. Well, I'm gonna say it it was unfavorable to Democrats had. Doug Jones not one. I mean, they need a pickup of two now instead of a pickup of three. All they got to do is pull Arizona and Nevada and play defense on the rest, and that's a wrap. Two years from now, is Doug Jones going to be a Democrat? Well, that that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> like, one. I mean, man, if he wants to keep his seat, he's got two choices. One, Gabriel can blow his horn, and Jesus comes back, and this is not even an issue. And number two, he be he becomes a registered Republican because there's no way that he's going to be able to hold on to that seat. That's what happened with Shelby, but I'd offer this as a counterpoint. Alabama hadn't had a statewide Democrat politician in so long that the entire Democrat Party apparatus has atrophied to nothing. I mean, you look at North Carolina as an example. When you had Pat McCrory as governor and Republican supermajorities in the legislature, it was very difficult for Democrats to win anything because they just couldn't find someone to help raise money, help recruit candidates, help do the stuff that is necessary to win elections. Now that Roy Cooper has won and you had Josh Stein win as attorney general, even though neither of them can do much because there are still Republican supermajorities, the fact that they have the bully pulpit enables them to bring in a lot more money than they were bringing in before. So if Doug Jones decides he wants to stay as a Democrat and run for re-election, but instead focuses on building a Democrat party apparatus, raising money, whatever else, he might have a chance. I don't know. I mean, I don't know Alabama like that, but... Maybe. I mean, he's definitely going to be able to carry the black belt in Alabama. Again, I guess the issue is if you look at the population of a place like Alabama versus North Carolina, where you have Wake County, Mecklenburg, and you know parts of greensboro like the population is so much different than a state like alabama yeah but i mean look the key point is in 2018 republicans only need two or democrats only need two and it's a lot easier to get two now than it was to get three before now 2020 is a much different map so we'll see i'm I'm gonna say say, go ahead okay i want to say just real quickly a couple things you mentioned Doug Jones building an apparatus in Alabama. One way that he can do that is remain loyal to the to black people that got him voted in the office in the first place. And that's has the he done that already? They, they haven't. And I, Democrats in general take advantage of black people on a regular basis and you look at them as second class citizens and say they're going to vote for us anyway. And whenever an election comes up, they start reaching their hands out and going to these churches and starting to talk to these black folk and saying, oh, look, we're here for you. We're going to support you. You don't want that other person there. And what ends up happening, as soon as they get in office and a chance to make policy that actually affects African-Americans, they don't do anything or they just walk the party line and kowtow down to leadership that doesn't want them to uh, address African-American issues. So Doug Jones is also already, from my estimation and from what I've read, doing a piss poor job of that. The other thing I want to say very briefly is the difference between Democrats and Republicans, especially right now, is that Democrats have allowed their U.S. senators and and elected officials to be mavericks, to use that term. Joe Manchin is allowed to do whatever he wants to. Uh, Heidi Heitkamp is allowed to be as independent as she wants to. John Tester goes back to his state every weekend to work on his farm. These people are allowed to be outliers in the party, which allows them to be more competitive in these red states. What happens to Republicans who are outliers? Well, Bob Corker chooses not to run for re-election again. Jeff Flake 
can't run for re-election again because he wouldn't have an opportunity to win against a more conservative uh, uh, opponent in the primary. So that is a huge oh, difference oh, oh, between I, Democrats. I, I, I would I would I would push back saying that Kelly Ward is not more Repub- not more conservative than Jeff Flake. She's a lot more idiotic. But okay. um, my my issue is that number one, if you look at trying to compare, you know, Democrats versus Republicans on that issue, I think that you know, with the Democratic Party right now, what happened to all the blue dogs? They've already been wiped out in the House. There's a few left in the Senate. I, I just I just wonder that if 2018 comes, 2020 comes, does the Democratic base have it in them to still nominate people at the highest level? Yeah, in a, in a state like Alabama, where, you know, the, the, your 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 Democratic Party is naturally going to be more center right. But in a state like uh, North Carolina and states like Florida, you know, are, are they going to have the same impulse? I mean, Joe Manchin's still winning elections. Joe Manchin's in West Virginia, no, but that's my, and, Joe that's my Man, and Joe Manchin was already governor of the state. But, but that's my—that's exactly my point. We're not, you're talking about—you're talking about national Democrats as a party. Yes, I agree in the sense that national Democrats as a party are going to have to come to a head and decide: are they going to move towards the center, or are they going to move all the way towards the left in order to stick with values that a lot of the most active, vocal part of their base is speaking on? But when we talk about states like West Virginia. There aren't that many people, Democrats in the state of West Virginia that are all far to the left in the first place. So, of course, they're going to nominate and support candidates that are more center. And the Democratic Party as a whole are going to allow those people to exist in it because they've shown that they're willing to do that. Whereas the Republican Party, especially if they say one negative word about Donald Trump, these folks are not allowed to run. For, these folks are, 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 are retiring. These folks are deciding not to run for re-election again in states that they were very popular in before Trump came along. Right. And, and that type of idiocy and lunacy is exactly why I left the Republican Party. That that it, <laughs> that group of people does not have a long term future because shit. Get they the don't. fuck out of here. Bullshit. They hey, took hey, over whoa, the party. Whoa, 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 whoa. First they of all, took, those, those, to me. those kind of people <laughs> took over the party. You have lost your mind. They okay. in the span of a year, Trump gets those, took those, over those people. Time. Those people aren't going to be able to win elections long term. That is the issue. That don't mean they're not going to give up the, the party apparatus. You, you, you're going to, you're going to get when your ass can't win elections year after year after year. You're going to have to do something different. Welcome to from 1940 until 1970 something, and then you had Watergate. So then you had another one from whenever that was until the fucking 80s and Reagan. The fact that Republicans aren't going to be able to win elections doesn't mean you're not going to have a bunch of kooky Trumpist bastards running the party for the long term future. I don't, I don't see that happening. Number one, at this, at the party level. They're not the majority. They might be a plurality, but instead, you're not. If you if you cannot keep the suburbs, your your party does not have a future. As at least the Republican Party doesn't have a future without the suburbs. The the the, the people. If you can't get people long term like Karen Handel, if you can't keep people like Dean Heller, it's not going to work out. Is it's just not. And as we've seen with Steve Bannon, Steve Bannon has a great ability to work to 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 lose seats that should be a cakewalk. How long do you think people are going to just deal with that? As long as Breitbart remains the most read conservative news site on the web. Breitbart is a joke. I mean, that's fine. But the fact is, party activists go read it every day. They tweet out links to it every day. A lot of things you say are a joke. 
Okay, some, I, I would say a plurality, as you say. Yeah. And the fact is, that's all you need. That's all elect- That's all it takes to win an election within the party. You want to pick a party chairman, all you need is a plurality. These are not majority vote races. I, 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 I guarantee you, over the next 10 years, number, number one, you, you're not going to be able to keep this going with the demographic changes that we're seeing in the country. That's number one. Number two, I mean, if, if you lose... Right now, if you're the Republican Party, if you lose married women, if you lose Orthodox Jews, if you lose Cubans in Florida, you, you, <laughs> you're going to be a hollowed out party. I mean, yeah, you're going to be able to win in Sampson County, North Carolina. Yeah, you're going to be able to win in, in, in upstate New York. That's not the majority of the country. And the, and the majority, and look at guys like Charlie Dent. If there's no home for them in the Republican Party, there's no future for the Republican Party. Well, you know, that's a good that's a good segue, Dave. I'm glad you mentioned that. Let's talk about how Republicans can win elections, even though they don't have a majority of the votes. Voter suppression laws and ways of restricting who's actually allowed to vote. So after the Alabama results, the New York Times ran a story. The title of it was Black Turnout in Alabama Complicates Debate on Voting Laws. And essentially, they note, for example, that Alabama does not have early voting, which is disproportionately used by minorities and the poor. Uh, They have restrictions on ex-felons being able to vote, even though they have served their debt to society. They have a voter ID law that, uh, in addition to that, they've got gerrymandered districts, both at the state legislature level and at the congressional level. And the question becomes, are those voting restrictions as bad as alleged? Do they disenfranchise as many people as alleged? Or does the fact that Doug Jones managed to win show that they're not really that big a deal? James, start us off. I think voter, voter suppression is, is obviously obviously real. We've, we've seen it uh, in North Carolina when they were very surgical about how they decided to exclude African-Americans or try to prevent African-Americans um, um, from, from voting through various different tactics. Um, We've seen it uh, historically, obviously, when it comes to uh, uh, a lot of the laws that existed um, regarding uh, grandfather clauses and poll taxes, et cetera. And these things are not necessarily present in a full form nowadays, but they exist in a sense in which people are trying to prevent blacks from voting. Now, the problem is we focus so much on voter fraud when there's very little evidence that voter fraud exists at a wide level. There's very little evidence that shows that voter fraud even takes place at a wide level. And so when you have laws like the voter ID law, making sure that you bring your ID to the polls in order to, 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 to vote, the, the problem is not that law in and of itself. That's not the problem. The problem isn't that you have to bring your ID in order to vote. That makes perfect sense when it comes down to it. The issue is the reason why the law is created, the spirit of the law and the people behind those types of laws are attempting to prevent people from having access or easy access to the polls. Preventing people from same-day voter registration is, is a tactic that people have tried to use. I agree with Dave when it comes to souls to the polls. Who are they stopping from going to the polls and voting? These are these are traditionally and culturally black churches that used to bring their members into church vans and drive them down to the polls to have an opportunity to vote. So it, it's not so much the laws in and of themselves that are trying to prevent voter fraud. It's the fact that the spirit of the laws are designed to prevent certain people from voting. And I think that the issue is that voter suppression is a much more important topic of discussion than I think voter fraud is. Uh, When when we were talking about voter suppression, 
and we're talking about who's being allowed, not allowed to vote, I think it's important for us to allow as many people who are qualified to vote or eligible. We need to allow them uh, easy access to voting. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't, it's not important to verify who's there. It's not important to verify, you know, that they are who they say they are. I think personally, I don't have an, an issue with voter ID. I think most people don't have an issue with identifying themselves when they're voting. But I think any large scale attempt to suppress voting needs to be challenged and needs to be uprooted. Um, as James was mentioning earlier, voting on Sundays is something that goes back to the civil rights movement where black churches were the epicenter of the community where most of the edu the political education and the political organization was coming from. And so I think we, we need to respect those, those traditions and respect those people that are trying to do that. James, are you eating on your end or what? <laughs> yeah. What the hell, man? What happened? Are you eating? No, 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 no. I, I'm here. I couldn't. I couldn't tell what it was. It sounded like you were opening a pack of peanuts or some shit. Oh, no, it sounded no, like you were no, opening no, some was, Pringles and eating. No, I moved. I moved. I had to move. I, had to, I was moving something. I was moving something. Man, we, we need to. We need to start. We need to do this shit from no, the top. No, I'm, no, no, no. We're good. I think this shit good. is terrible compared to the last one. This shit is terrible. It is terrible, but we gonna make it work. We we ain't doing a third take because it ain't gonna get no better after the first two. All right, so let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about one of the most common ways that we suppress the black vote, and that's by having the police kill folks. Uh, back a couple days before Christmas in Texas, police decided to summarily execute a woman because she had supposedly stolen a car, and in the process, they were such bad shots that they managed to kill a six-year-old Hispanic boy, Cameron Prescott, who was inside the home with his family minding his own business. And then we just had a story come out yesterday where a 26-year-old guy, Andrew Finch, in Wichita, Kansas, uh, was killed as part of a swatting incident. Apparently, there was some argument on Call of Duty between two gamers. One gamer gave the other one a fake address. That other gamer called police. Police showed up, and as this guy is walking to answer the door, they blew his ass away. I guess my question is, the, the police narrative on both of these stories doesn't make any damn sense. You know, in the case of Cameron Prescott, they talk about they were searching for this particular woman because of a stolen car, but there's no mention in any of the news reports or the police discussion about a stolen car ever being found. They say the woman was trapped in a closet and had a gun, but somehow they let her escape. You know, and even though the investigation is underway, the chief said that all policies were complied with, which I would say is a pretty good fucking argument to change your policies. But you got the same thing with the SWAT case. You know, they, the police are going to do a thorough investigation at the same time your police chief is saying we followed all of the policies we had in place. Is it reasonable to expect that if someone knocks on my door right now and announces they're the police that I'm going to get blown away? You know, if, if in the case of Cameron Prescott, someone's trying to break into my home, is it reasonable to think that I'm going to die by the police coming to save me? At what point do we need to just say, all right, look, these policies have to change. How many more folks have to be killed before we get to that? And I'll let either of you that want to take it first, take it away. I think policy change is so difficult. And I, I'm just very nihilistic when it comes to what can happen here. I think that it doesn't, it, we, we've seen people actively try to go out and express the idea that these policies, the institutions that exist like law enforcement, 
that have racial issues, that have issues when it comes to to class and socioeconomics and, and how they interact and deal with people. We know that these institutions need a lot of work, but policy change only happens. It really only happens when there is a movement to change that policy that is focused and 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 narrow and and basically like what we used to call in school a smart goal <laughs> something that was that was uh specific uh, measurable achievable i don't remember the r or the t yes yeah, spe- specific measurable achievable um uh realistic and timely so yeah. basically a smart goal is is what we would need in order for policy change to happen and it has to happen amongst people who are willing to be active in that space People have been active in these spaces, but ultimately these policies are not changing. And ultimately, I think that what we're finding is that people are becoming complacent when these things happen. They hear about a child being killed by the police because we hear about it so often and because we have such wide access to hearing about it, not just happening in our community, but in communities all across the country, around the world, we become complacent in these things and they don't matter. They're not as important and not as outrageous to us anymore. So I, I just find it difficult to figure out that there's going to be any significant policy change. I think stuff that you're doing, Greg, for example, highlight these things on a weekly basis every Monday, highlight these things on a weekly basis on the great uh, legendary award winning Fisker Mall podcast. <laughs> I think, I think, I think you were surprise winning. You were surprise winning Fisker Mall podcast. But I think doing stuff like that, I think is very important because I think the only actual movement that can happen is within smaller communities, within people within their own communities, making uh, uh, these issues, highlighting these issues uh, as something that needs to be addressed within their their own uh, own spaces. And so I think that's the only thing that I can look at in a hopeful way as to how these possible things can change. And on a quick point about uh, these gamers, if you, um, Black Mirror dropped, um, on the 29th of December. And Black Mirror is a show on Netflix uh, that's streamable that allows you to watch what might happen if if we allow our technology that we're starting to innovate, uh, if we allow it to go awry or or how the technology can be abused or how relationships will change due to uh, uh, changes in technology. The first episode is called The USS Callister. And this episode, uh, I won't spoil it. I think your listeners should definitely check it out, especially if they are uh, uh, familiar with gaming or familiar with uh, TV shows like Star Trek, which I know Dave is. Um, <laughs> but that that episode actually um, talks Dude, about sure. some of the dangers that go into play, that come to play whenever you have uh, um, people in these online communities uh, thinking that their actions have zero consequences. So um, I, I think that that's something that we have to constantly be aware of that is definitely uh, uh, causing a lot of trouble within um, our world. Yeah, I, I agree with a large part of that, James. I mean, there's been guys that have really tried to work hard on reform, you know, guys like Cory Booker in Newark or, you know, uh, Mark Morial in New Orleans or police chiefs like David Brown in Texas or Richard Pennington, who's also in New Orleans. I, I, I don't I don't have the silver bullet. I don't know. I don't know what you do. I mean, obviously, we have friends that we we were just recently talking to on a group chat about law enforcement. He's talking about, you know, it needs to be more training. The the issues surrounding rural police departments as opposed to urban police departments because of their lack of training, their lack of preparedness. 
But uh, as far as your point about a lot of people not caring, I think a lot of that is due to just most people. If you're a middle class person or upper middle class or wealthy, you just don't have many bad interactions with law enforcement. They're not in your neighborhoods constantly. You know, I think it was my man, Buddy Colvin from The Wire, who said that, you know, once you start telling people they're in a war, they're going to behave like soldiers. And when we have these neighborhoods, uh, specifically places like South Side of Chicago, parts of Baltimore, uh, Anacostia in D.C., when you have these neighborhoods of high poverty, high crime, uh, low rates of, of working, then, and then the police come in there, we see a lot more just really bad incidents. And it doesn't trickle down to places like, you know, the, the suburbs of Atlanta or Cary, North Carolina. So I, I think this is, a, this is as big of a housing issue and as big of an education issue as it is a policing issue. Because so many, so many of these places are just rife with poverty that we need to, to find out ways that, that uh, we can help empower these people and get them into the middle class and, and, and allow them to have agency. Now, this isn't a Heather McDonald argument that's basically saying, hey, the best way to end, end crime is gentrification. No, I think we need to yeah, have- that, that article- We need to have, we need to have an opportunity about that article later. Heather McDonald's a fucking nut. Well, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, <laughs> but I read that column. And it's, she's a fucking nut. She's crazy. Well, I, I just believe in having an opportunity society because the, 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 crime, the crime that you see in, in, in places like New Orleans, happens at a much lower level in places like rural America and post-industrial towns that are rife with methamphetamines, that are rife with STDs, that are that are rife with uh, of, of, of people that are out of work. And those are not majority black. You know, th those, those are majority white areas. The issues are when there's a lack of being tethered into the community, the lack of being able to work, a lack of being able to be invested in the community, then you're going to have higher increase. You're going to have higher rates of just negative interaction with the police. So we need to talk about having an opportunity in society again. Well, I think you got to talk about more than that because I mean, we use the criminal justice system to fund the government. That's the main purpose it exists. We use it to extract taxes from the poor in the form of court costs so that we don't have taxes raised on everyone else. You know, the poor well, people. They're the ones that can't afford to pay it. Absolutely, but we still go ahead and ticket them for it anyway. Pull them over anyway. You know, and on top of that, you know, if you're a poor person, you're more likely to have a blown uh, rear taillight, you know, so you're going to get pulled over more often. That's going to lead to police asking you to step out of the car or whatever the fuck else. You know? and, and you don't have a second vehicle. So you still got to if, if I've got one car and my headlights out, I still got to go to work. Absolutely. So, so I, it's not like I can. Hey, well, you know what? The, the my uh, my my mini coop isn't working. So I, I guess I'll drive the Tahoe. No, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. You still got, you still got to get in your car and go to work. But we're gonna hit you with the ticket anyway. Court costs have been increased under both Democrats and Republicans. From when I moved into here in North Carolina back in 1998, it was around forty dollars a piece. It's now one hundred eighty-eight dollars a piece. You got to come to court because if you don't, we'll go ahead and issue a failure to appear that's going to get you arrested. And if you do come to court after the FTA, we tack on another $250 FTA fee. If you get arrested from the FTA, you got to pay $55 a night that you happen to stay in jail, plus whatever you pay to your bondsman to get out because you're given a secure bond since you didn't show up to court. The whole system is fucked. You know, when I ran for the state Senate last year, I had a 30 point criminal justice platform. 
And, you know, a lot of people cared about it, but all it did was instead of losing by 36%, like the Republicans that ran before me, I lost by 31%. You know what I mean? So our whole system is fucked, and it goes beyond just the opportunity society. It goes back to rethinking our entire system of government. Do you really have three co-equal branches when you're using one of them to fund the other two? It's all bullshit. I, I don't disagree with that, Greg. And, and yeah, it does need to be more than an opportunity society. Um, I, I just I, to combat something like swatting, though. I'm I'm a little that's a little bit out of my depth. But I, I, one thing that I know I know works well is that when you have jobs in these areas, it, look, let's look at you know New York is a good example of this. Even when people talk about gentrification, right? They talk about these areas. Well, you know, Manhattan has less crime. The Bronx is not highly gentrified. It also has less crime, but they've also had more jobs in those areas. There's also more ways to work in those areas. Uh, the majority black areas and the majority Hispanic areas all across uh, New York City have had lower crime. So I, I do think, I mean, obviously work is not a panacea, but when, you, when people have economic agency, it cuts down on a lot of the malarkey that can happen to the poor. I love the word, the use of the word malarkey. <laughs> I'm a 30-year-old black man just used the word malarkey on this podcast. Hey, hey man. Fox channeling his inner Joe Biden on that one. <laughs> God love him. God love him. <laughs> All right, so I was going to ask a question about Jonah Goldberg and Arthur Brooks, but I'm actually going to skip it because we're now about an hour into this. So instead, we're going to transition into predictions for 2018. I'd ask both of y'all to come up with your thoughts on what's going to happen. They don't have to be political. Mine are. I'm going to give you mine first. I think the tax bill is actually going to lead to some decent economic growth. But I think the Republicans are going to lose their majorities in both the House and the Senate in Congress. Uh, and you're going to end up with a very frustrated Papaya POTUS, Donald Trump, for the last two years of his time in office. James, what you got for 2018? I happen to agree with uh, your predictions uh, for um, where we are going to be politically. I want to talk about a social issue, uh, not necessarily a social issue so much, but as an entertainment issue that is going to reflect on society a little bit. In 2017, a film called Get Out, directed, produced, and written by uh, comedian uh, Jordan Peele. This movie addresses the issues that are going on in the black community, but not just the black community issue. The film is also a critique of a lot of white liberals and white liberalism or the belief uh, that that white people who are interacting with black folk um, are, are doing such in a way that is is you, that is authentic. Um, and that film is such a strong critique of white liberalism and, and, and that particular uh, mindset and attitude that goes along with that and I predict that when the Academy Awards take place in 2018, this film will receive some nominations, but Hollywood and, and, and their, their, their uh, uh, need to highlight themselves as being these very progressive, uh, frankly, white liberals when it comes down to it, will not give the film everything that it is due, everything that it deserves. Amen, uh, James. Primarily because they are afraid to address themselves. Michael Jackson said it best. I'm starting with the man in the mirror and it feels like <laughs> some people in Hollywood haven't taken a look in a mirror in a long time to recognize their own faults when it comes to inclusion in a ton of films 
and inclusion in the places of power in Hollywood, specifically when it comes to uh, producing, when it comes to the studio system, et cetera, and the lack of people of color in those positions. You will see a lot of films that are uh, related to uh, women's rights, especially with the Me Too movement. Hollywood's trying to rightfully uh, right the ship when it comes to how they've treated women over the past uh, centuries, uh, past century, I should say. Uh, but uh, you will not see Get Out get the uh, uh, what it's deserved because Hollywood has shown over its course of history that unless you are unless you are a, 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 a black man who is a corrupt, um, vicious police officer or a black woman who is being railed by Billy Bob Thornton or you're a, 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 a dictator in a country uh, like Uganda, it's going to be very hard for African-Americans to get there just uh, do in Hollywood, unless you have another agenda attached to it, uh, like the film uh, Moonlight did. All right. So the white progressives in Hollywood are going to snub Get Out. Dave, what do you got? First of all, I'd like to say, James, man, amen, brother. Me, J.C. Watts, Michael Steele, Tim Scott, we got room for you over here, brother. Feel yeah, free to come, <laughs> come, come to the dark side, man. I'm, 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 I'm like Snoke, man. Uh, you know, we're going to convert you. But um, number one, I don't think they're going to, I think Republicans are going to keep the Senate. I think the House might be up for grabs. I agree with James on Get Out, but I think there will be some vindication, and I think Black Panther will be the highest grossing movie of 2018. I think it is going to do what Luke Cage did to the third degree. I think Luke Cage, for those of y'all that, that, that don't keep up with this type of thing, Luke Cage is a, a comic book series on Netflix featuring a black private eye turned superhero type deal. And Black Panther is going to blow all that stuff out of the water, man. It's going to be in February during Black History Month, the spirit of Dr. King and uh, Edie Amin. Well, not Edie Amin. That wouldn't be good. But it's still the spirit. <laughs> we, were going, we were talking too long, man. The spirit of Haley Selassie. <laughs> Marcus Garvey are going to come down in February. He's going to bless us. And, you know, this. I think it's going to be bigger than the return, than the last Jedi, which was horrible. And... It's going to blow everything to see up, man. Tomorrow. I'm going to see The Last Jedi on New Year's Eve. We'll see how it turns out. It's, it's a disgrace. For all of you true Star Wars fans, do not spend another dime. This is a bastardization of the dream of George Lucas and everything that the Jedi stand for. Well, but look, I, I can't sit here and put too much subscription into the dream of George Lucas when he went back and modified the movies himself. But it's his, it's his story. Yeah, I mean, I get it, but you cut it one way the first time and you decide a couple of decades later you don't like it and you tweak it. So, you know, whether or not Han shot first and so on, I don't know. I, I'm not going to put too much stock in George Lucas's dream. At least, at least, with you know, the prequels, and this is a sidebar. Really, we're going to nerd out here for a second. But the prequels, episodes one through three, get lambasted. But at least... Oh, episode one was trash. Episode one least, was terrible. At least the prequels attempted to do something different at so least this movie pre- no it did not it just was a rehash and i don't want to spoil it for anybody last year i was not a rehash it, it, it does something different it changes the way it changes the way you think about it changes the way you think about the, the jedi and that religion it changes the way you think about what what a, what a hero is and and it, it shows fallibility in heroes it, it's a it's a really good movie it's a disgrace and <laughs> <laughs> and I also, but just just taking, let's take the Force Awakens for a second. In the Force Awakens, it's basically nothing has changed since the Battle of Endor. 
you still got the, the this this ragtag group of rebels who are trying to overcome this totalitarian state. I think it would have, and they're led by a force user. I think it would have been a whole lot as a, a force user and a fallen Jedi. I think it would have been much much more interesting if you'd had Leia as like the chancellor of a fledgling republic and seeing all the mistakes that a republic that a government makes when it's trying to get itself off its feet and then have Luke with the new Jedi order and then have the the, the villains the first order be reactionaries and, and can, terrorists that would have been much more interesting you can read Dave Fox's fan fiction on Reddit of how he <laughs> <as> a, <laughs> would have changed the series if you would like. it's actually at www.blackmanlockedinhisbasement.com <laughs> I got fan fictions of that Batman and Superman it's just really bad <laughs> but no seriousness no like the, the vision of Star Wars could have progressed some more. Instead, 30 years later, you know, the Jedi still managed to screw the pooch. Yeah, everything still sucks. We even though we blew up, even though we killed all of the, the top leaders, even Admiral Moff we killed, and yet still these people, the First Order, managed to at least keep us on the ropes. To me, that's so much more ridiculous. And it would have been so much more interesting to have a see Leia and Luke and all these guys and Lando. Who was criminally left out? They need to have a new, they need to have a Lando movie in February during Black History Month to make it up. But no, I'm serious. They should have, they should have like a, a movie that was that was dealing with a new government and trying to build coalitions. And then you have these reactionary fanboys who are nostalgic about the Empire. And what people don't understand is nostalgia has its most impact with those that never lived through it. It's why we have all these Confederates. But that's a, that's, a, that's a story for another time. But I'm saying that would have been way more interesting, having the First Order as these reactionary terrorists uh, you know, who are trying to defeat and trying to bring back something they never lived through, and Leia and Luke trying to navigate this whole new new paradigm versus, hey, yeah, we're still on the run again. For 30 years, nothing, nothing's, nothing's changed. We're still terrible. Everything's still effed up. Yeah, it, it was it's bad. Do not go and see The Last Jedi, to sum it up. <laughs> All right, we'll take that movie critique from Dave as a wrap-up. Guys, how can people find you on social media? Dave, where are you at? I'm at dfoxthetruth at twitter.com. I might add you if you look like you're not a robot. But, you know, if you're like hotlips96 at Twitter, I'm not going to add you. So <laughs> it's just the way it is. James, how about you? Uh, you can find me at Mr. Hankins Opus, M-R-H-A-N-K-I-N-S-O-P. U.S. I have a podcast dropping soon where I'm just interviewing some of my classmates who will be future leaders in education in this country going forward. Uh, just kind of getting where their headspace is, trying to just get a bit of their personality out there. Uh, may be interesting to you, it may not, but uh, when it is ready to drop, I'll let uh, T. Greg know and uh, he can put it out to the listeners if y'all are interested in that. Yeah, we'll plug it. All right, fellas. Well, Dave, James, thank you both for joining us, and we'll look forward to having you probably in a couple months. All right, man. Hey, Happy New Year's, everybody. Peace. All right, so those are my good friends, Dave Fox and James Hankins. Dave is at DFoxTheTruth on Twitter. James is at Mr. Hankins Opus. And also, I want it to be known, I sliced and diced that entire interview myself. So if there's any problems with you you don't like, blame me. But if it turned out well, also blame me, because damn it, that was hard. I see why people like Mike get paid the big bucks, because that took hours, and it was incredibly fucking difficult. 
Okay, so now that the interview is done, let's dive into our Law 140 on the Dormant Commerce Clause. This story relates to the net neutrality vote by the FCC last month, where the FCC voted to eliminate the federal net neutrality rules. And a lot of folks had questions as to whether or not states could set up their own versions of net neutrality. New York is actually looking at how to do that. And the question is, is that constitutional? My guess is, I don't want to spoil it, never mind. So one of the issues that New York and any other state that wants to look into doing this they're going to have to deal with is the concept of preemption. So you have the supremacy clause in the Constitution and any area that the federal government has reserved exclusively unto itself, state rules get preempted by the federal rules. A piece of that relates to the Commerce Clause and congressional power to regulate commerce. So first, second rule of Fisk, you always got to remember that because that is starting at the source. Whenever you're talking about the Constitution, their statutes or anything else, you have to know the text that you're working with. So Article 1 of the Constitution spells out the powers of Congress. And Article 1, Section 8, the part we care about, reads, quote, the Congress shall have power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. So every piece of that sentence matters. The power, the word commerce, the word regulate, the pieces, you know, foreign nations, several states, Indian tribes, the word among gets a lot of focus. So all of those words matter. One of the first cases that you want to look to in expanding on what that means is a landmark case from 1824 called Gibbons versus Ogden. So this case involves steamboats. And back in the day, prior to the creation of the United States, individual states would have licenses for people to operate steamboats on the waterways between the states. If you look at the borders of quite a few U.S. states, a lot of them are separated by rivers. That's one of the most common geographic features used to demarcate borders between states. So there's a guy named Thomas Gibbons. He is the plaintiff in the case. He had a federal license to run a steamboat between New York and New Jersey after the United States has been created, the Constitution has been ratified. New York had granted a monopoly to Aaron Ogden, who was the only person allowed to operate his steamboat between New York and New Jersey. And when Gibbons initially sued, he had to sue in New York State Court. And of course, New York is going to uphold its own laws uh, protecting its own monopoly. So the case was appealed to the United States Supreme Court, and the court ruled unanimously. So there are only seven justices back then. But the court ruled unanimously that New York's law was invalid because of the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution and the grant to Congress to regulate interstate commerce. And I'm going to give you a link in the show notes. I want you to read it because it goes into a lot of stuff at length, including, for example, the phrase strict construction. We hear about that a lot in politics. The actual meaning of that phrase as it's applied to the Constitution gets discussed at length in this particular opinion. But one of the things that the court goes into is deciding what the Constitution means. Bear in mind, these people lived with the founders. They lived with the framers, the guys who actually put pen to parchment and wrote out the Constitution. These people on the Supreme Court knew them, had meals with them, drank with them, they were friends, you know, etc. So I'm going to give you several significant quotes from that opinion. There's a lot more to it, 
but some of these uh, are. So, for example, the opinion says, quote, as preliminary, and sorry, let me pause. Back in this era, it's very common to see not just Supreme Court justices, but really all politicians. They have this very, there's a lot of commas. There's a shitload of commas, and that was normal for the style back then. So trying to take that and, and speak it aloud becomes challenging. So if I fuck it up, you'll know why. But the court says, quote, as preliminary to the very able discussions of the Constitution, which we have heard from the bar, and as having some influence on its construction, reference has been made to the political situation of these states anterior to its formation. It has been said that they were sovereign, were completely independent, and were connected with each other only by a league. This is true. But when these allied sovereigns converted their league into a government, when they converted their Congress of Ambassadors, deputed to deliberate on their common concerns and to recommend measures of general utility, into a legislature empowered to enact laws on the most interesting subjects, the whole character in which the states appear underwent a change, the extent of which must be determined by a fair consideration of the instrument by which that change was effected, of course referring to the Constitution. The court continues, The subject to be regulated is commerce. And our Constitution being, as was aptly said at the bar, one of enumeration and not of definition, to ascertain the extent of the power it becomes necessary to settle the meaning of the word. The counsel for the appellee would limit it to traffic, to buying and selling, or the interchange of commodities, and do not admit that it comprehends navigation. This would restrict a general term applicable to many objects to one of its significations. Commerce undoubtedly is traffic, but it is something more. It is intercourse. It describes the commercial intercourse between nations and parts of nations in all its branches and is regulated by prescribing rules for carrying on that intercourse. The mind can scarcely conceive a system for regulating commerce between nations, which shall exclude all laws concerning navigation, which shall be silent on the admission of the vessels of the one nation into the ports of the other, and be confined to prescribing rules for the conduct of individuals in the actual employment of buying and selling or of barter. It is the power to regulate, that is, to prescribe the rule by which commerce is to be governed. This power, like all others vested in Congress, is complete in itself, may be exercised to its utmost extent, and acknowledges no limitations other than are prescribed in the Constitution. These are expressed in plain terms and do not affect the questions which arise in this case or which have been discussed at the bar. If, as has always been understood, the sovereignty of Congress, though limited to specific objects, is plenary as to those objects, the power over commerce with foreign nations and among the several states is vested in Congress as absolutely as it would be in a single government, having in its constitution the same restrictions on the exercise of the power as are found in the Constitution of the United States." The grant does not convey power, which might be beneficial to the grantor if retained by himself, or which can inure solely to the benefit of the grantee, but is an investment of power for the general advantage in the hands of agents selected for that purpose, which power can never be exercised by the people themselves, but must be placed in the hands of agents or lie dormant. And that word dormant in there is what became a reference to the Dormant Commerce Clause, also referred to as the Negative Commerce Clause. So that case was decided in 1824. Again, Gibbons v. Ogden is a landmark case. It's taught in most civics classes. If you've not heard of it, go check it on Wikipedia, check the show notes. 
Uh, well, five years later, in 1829, you have a variation of the same type of fact pattern. It's Wilson versus Blackbird Creek Marsh Company, where essentially the state of Delaware had allowed Blackbird Creek, Blackbird rather, Blackbird Creek Marsh Company to construct a dam over the Blackbird Creek. And Wilson was a licensed owner of a boat and ended up crashing into the dam. So Blackbird Creek Marsh Company sued him for damages because he messed up their uh, dam. So Wilson said, no, 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 you can't sue me for damages because the fact that you were allowed to build this dam in the first place violates the Dormant Commerce Clause based on what the Supreme Court has just said five years ago. So again, in the case, it was a unanimous opinion. The court actually held in favor of Blackbird Creek Marsh, and they said that the decision of Delaware to allow a specific company to build a dam over a river that was only within the state was, quote, an affair between the government of Delaware and its citizens, and therefore didn't conflict with the Dormant Commerce Clause. The court found that Congress hadn't taken any actions at all that would conflict with what Delaware was doing, and they said, quote, we do not think that the act can be considered as repugnant to the power to regulate commerce in its dormant state or as being in conflict with any law passed on the subject. So that began to shape the contours of the Dormant Commerce Clause. If a state has some kind of regulation that impacts interstate commerce, there's a question of how that power is to be exercised. So if it's something where it doesn't treat interstate commerce differently from intrastate commerce. So your stuff within the boundaries of North Carolina is completely identical to how Virginia's stuff coming into North Carolina is treated. Then you look at that power, that regulatory ability, as a concurrent power shared jointly by both a state and the federal government. On the other hand, if the proposed regulations do discriminate against interstate commerce. They treat domestic producers differently than out-of-state producers. Or even if it's neutral, it has a tremendous burden on interstate commerce. In that scenario, it becomes an exclusive power wielded only by the federal government. So to give you an idea of how this plays out in practice, you look at the case Maine versus Taylor, which is in 1986. And this is a case involving uh, parasites and invasive species. Essentially, Maine had banned importing live fish bait into the state. So this was obviously a what we call a facially discriminatory regulation. Anything grown within Maine was treated normally, but if it was grown outside of Maine, it was banned. And the question became whether or not this was constitutional. So writing for the court, the opinion says, quote, Appley Robert J. Taylor operates a bait business in Maine, despite a Maine statute prohibiting the importation of live bait fish. He arranged to have 158,000 live golden shiners delivered to him from outside the state. The shipment was intercepted, and a federal grand jury in the District of Maine indicted Taylor for violating and conspiring to violate the Lacey Act Amendments of 1981. A section of that act makes it a federal crime to import, export, transport, sell, receive, acquire, or purchase in interstate or foreign commerce any fish or wildlife taken, possessed, transported, or sold in violation of any law or regulation of any state or in violation of any foreign law. Taylor moved to dismiss the indictment on the ground that Maine's import ban unconstitutionally burdens interstate commerce and therefore may not form the basis for a federal prosecution under the Lacey Act. Maine intervened to defend the validity of its statute, 
arguing that the ban legitimately protects the state's fisheries from parasites and non-native species that might be included in shipments of live bait fish. The court then goes on, quote, although the clause, referring to the Commerce Clause, thus speaks in terms of powers bestowed upon Congress, the court long has recognized that it also limits the power of the states to erect barriers against interstate trade. Maine's statute restricts interstate trade in the most direct manner possible, blocking all inward shipments of live bait fish at the state's border. Still, as both the District Court and the Court of Appeals recognized, this fact alone does not render the law unconstitutional. The limitation imposed by the Commerce Clause on state regulatory power is by no means absolute, and the states retain authority under their general police powers to regulate matters of, quote, legitimate local concern even though interstate commerce may be affected. In determining whether a state has overstepped its role in regulating interstate commerce, the court has distinguished between state statutes that burden interstate transactions only incidentally and those that affirmatively discriminate against such transactions. While statutes in the first group violate the Commerce Clause only if the burdens they impose on interstate trade are clearly excessive in relation to the putative local benefits, Statutes in the second group are subject to more demanding scrutiny. This court explained in Hughes v. Oklahoma that once a state law is shown to discriminate against interstate commerce, either on its face or in practical effect, the burden falls on the state to demonstrate both that the statute serves a legitimate local purpose and that the purpose could not be served as well by available non-discriminatory means. So long story short, the court ended up upholding the main regulation because there was no other way to prevent the risk of having parasites or invasive species coming in through the live uh, bait fish. So that Hughes v. Oklahoma case referenced by the court becomes known as the Hughes balancing test. So that gets used whenever a state regulation discriminates against interstate commerce. And we use the word discriminate. All that means is that it treats it differently. It doesn't have to be substantially differently if it treats out-of-state commerce differently than in-state commerce, it is considered discriminatory, and the Hughes balancing test applies, where it's normally invalid unless the it serves a legitimate local purpose that can't be served as well by available non-discriminatory means. To give you an idea of one scenario where the Hughes balancing test applied in North Carolina, and fairly recently too, I mean, this was still when I was in high school, but it's recent-ish for this type of stuff, uh, back in 1996, in the case of Fulton Corporation versus Faulkner, the Supreme Court considered the legality of what North Carolina had called its intangibles tax, which essentially, if a you own corporate stock in a business, if that business conducted more business within the state, meant it paid more in income taxes to North Carolina, you could deduct more of the cost associated with selling the stock. Uh, and then the inverse was true, so that if you own stock in an out-of-state corporation that had less business going on in the state, you could deduct less of the value of that stock, because essentially the court was trying, the the government rather, was trying to make money uh, on your sale of stocks that it couldn't make from taxing the income of the business. And that's a very obvious, facially discriminatory setup, because it privileged stock purchases and stock sales for companies that were completely in North Carolina or, you know, it's basically a sliding scale. So the more you're in North Carolina, the better benefit that you got. And when the court looked at this, it found that this violated the Dormant Commerce Clause and had North Carolina's intangibles tax declared invalid. 
So this is different from what became known as the Pike balancing test from the case Pike versus Bruce Church Incorporated. And that dealt with non-discriminatory statutes that still nonetheless burden interstate commerce. So to give you some details with Pike, essentially this involved an Arizona regulation over how to package cantaloupes. And the court, in giving that detail, says, quote, The appellee in this case is a company engaged in extensive commercial farming operations in Arizona and California. The appellant handles the Arizona Fruit and Vegetable Standardization Act. They're the person tasked with enforcing it. Uh, quote, a provision of the act requires that with certain exceptions, all cantaloupes grown in Arizona and offered for sale must be packed in regular compact arrangement in closed standard containers approved by the supervisor. Invoking his authority under that provision, the appellant issued an order prohibiting the Appley Company from transporting uncrated cantaloupes from its Parker, Arizona ranch to nearby Blythe, California for packing and processing. And what the state of Arizona argued was that the regulation treated gross growth within the state no differently than it treated cantaloupes grown out of state and imported in. They all had to be in this packaging uh, in a regular compact arrangement using standard containers. What the court said in reviewing that was that that didn't matter. And they say, quote, at the core of the Arizona Fruit and Vegetable Standardization Act are the requirements that fruits and vegetables shipped from Arizona meet certain standards of wholesomeness and quality and that they be packed in standard containers in such a way that the outer layer or exposed portion of the pack does not materially misrepresent the quality of the lot as a whole. The impetus for the act was the fear that some growers were shipping inferior or deceptively packaged produce, with the result that the reputation of Arizona growers generally was being tarnished and their financial return concomitantly reduced. It was to prevent this that the act was passed in 1929. The state has stipulated that its primary purpose is to promote and preserve the reputation of Arizona growers by prohibiting deceptive packaging. The court then went on to note that the company being affected here already had a plant in California to handle its packaging for them, and to comply with the statute, they would have to invest close to a quarter million dollars to build a new packaging plant from scratch. There's a similar case involving the shipment of sardines over in South Carolina, and what the court said was that even though the regulation was in fact non-discriminatory, it didn't treat interstate commerce any differently from intrastate commerce, the benefit to the locals, the preservation of the reputation of Arizona cantaloupe growers, was not sufficient enough to merit forcing this company to spend a quarter million dollars to build a new plant. So the Supreme Court struck down this Arizona regulation. So essentially, when you're dealing with dormant Commerce Clause cases, you've got a two-prong path to, to decide how to deal with things. First question you have to ask is, does the regulation treat out-of-state commerce or foreign commerce differently than it does commerce within the state? If the answer to that is yes, the regulation is typically unconstitutional unless the state can prove the regulation serves a legitimate local purpose that could not be served as well by available non-discriminatory means. If the answer to that question is no, it does not treat those things differently. It's unconstitutional if the burden of the regulations is, quote, clearly excessive, unquote, 
in relation to the putative local benefits. Now, in both cases, there's two exceptions. One is that Congress can decide to give the states authority to regulate things if it wants to, because it's a congressional power. If they want to delegate that back to the states, they have that choice. The other exception is if the state is what's called a market participant, if they're actually engaging in the marketplace as a buyer as opposed to as a regulator. So, for example, if a state decides that they want to build a building and they don't want to use out-of-state suppliers for their materials, they have the ability to do that because every regular customer also has the ability to discriminate among potential vendors. So that's called the market participant exception. Those two exceptions always apply, but if neither of those are present, you've got to pick the Hughes balancing test if the regulation discriminates against interstate commerce, or the Pike test if it doesn't discriminate but is still clearly excessive. So in the case of New York and other states looking into doing net neutrality, my suspicion is that any of those regulations would ultimately be held to violate the Dormant Commerce Clause because assuming for the sake of argument, they're treated as non-discriminatory regulations. They treat domestic ISPs no differently than out-of-state ISPs. I suspect what you're going to find is the expense that the companies would have to endure to have net neutrality working just for the IP addresses within a particular state will be excessive in relation to the local benefits the residents would get from having net neutrality in that state. And I think the Supreme Court would end up striking those regulations down. So that concludes this particular Law 140, which means it also concludes this podcast. I hope you learned something and you enjoyed it. If you did, please do us a favor and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and leave us a written review if you don't mind. It helps us boost our rankings and help find new listeners so we can spread the word about the glories of the Fiskamall podcast. So, folks, thank you again for listening. I truly appreciate it. On Monday, we will have a criminal justice fuckery-only episode of Fiskamall. There won't be politics. There won't be a Law 140. Uh, and then hopefully the week after that, we'll be back to normal. So I hope those of you that happen to be in the snow are able to uh, stay dry and make sure that you don't get trapped in any of this. And for everyone else, all of you, have a blessed rest of the week. Enjoy your weekend, and I will talk to you on Monday. <laughs>